Thank you for listening to the podcast series, Healing in the Bayou. This episode focuses on the exclusion of marginalized communities in mainstream Western medicine. Before beginning, I have several people and institutions to thank. I'd first like to thank my interviewees, Dr. Richard McKay, Claudia Hanley, Mr. O.C., Mr. John Spencer, Mr. Harold Hayes, and Ms. Laura Guidry. I would also like to thank the Gilbo Center for providing the equipment and podcast studio, as well as University of Louisiana at Lafayette's Department of History and Philosophy, the Public History Program, Center for Louisiana Studies, and the University Special Collections. And finally, the Iberia African American Historical Society, the Youngsville Historical Society, and Vermillionville, who helped us greatly by hosting us and providing amazing interviews. These interviews have been insightful and have also inspired me to be more empathetic in how I approach medicine and the practices of it. This empathy has also led me to reconsider how healthcare and medicine have been administered. One of the first readings we had in our course was Suman Seth's book, Difference in Disease, in which he discusses the relationship between the British Empire and medicine. He describes how British officials viewed certain diseases as being tied to one's race. While these beliefs and practices took place in the 18th century, Seth describes how enslavers use these ideas to justify the lack of medical care provided to enslaved people, and this displays how powerful people administered health care and used it to push their own agendas. While these malpractices took place in the 18th century, race still played a key factor in one's access to health care in the 20th century. During the Jim Crow era, African Americans received segregated health care. Medical attention to uh, blacks were slow, and some couldn't afford it. Many couldn't afford it. So that's why we tried to use whatever methods they had, you know, for healing. Mr. Harold Hayes reiterated this. Of course, you know, it was segregated too, so you had all kinds of different issues to deal with there. Then again, like I said, you didn't know what kind of, I hate to say it, but it's the truth. I mean, it's like, you just didn't know what you was going to get through a total segregated system I uh, from first grade to 12 yeah it was it was no I never went to integrated system it was totally segregated from first grade to 12 for me Uh, but I remember walking uh, from my little community, which was known as Little Brooklyn, I remember walking to, to my elementary school, uh, which was, if I had to take a guess, if it wasn't a mile away from home, it was close to it, uh, but as little first graders, and it was so many obstacles you had to deal with, because we had to cross the bridge, we had to cross by your test, and some of the, sometimes the bridge wasn't constructed too well, you'd walk and at that time the bridge was made out of wood. So where you the walking path may have been if there was a missing wood, you had to jump over it. You know, and it, it's amazing. I'm just so amazed we never had accidents. Mr. Hayes also described how African Americans often visited charity hospitals in cases of emergencies. Say not that if it was serious enough, we had to go to Lafayette to the charity system. The charity system has always been in Lafayette, as far as I know. They didn't have it here. All the hospitals here were private, mm-hmm. which means that you had to pay. Uh, but some medical beliefs and practices have also been factually incorrect. Mr. O.C. provided me a more lighthearted example of an interesting concoction that was believed to be a vitamin. He has described to me how during his childhood it was common for everyone to take Hadacol. Mr. O.C. described to me what Hadacol was and how they consumed the medicine. Hadacol is a name prior to the Hadacol patent medicine. Mr. LeBlanc had a patent medicine called Happy Day Cough Syrup. That was the name of it. Well, he took the first two letters of Happy Day and Cough Syrup and made it Hadacol. <laughs> and he put his last name on the, the name, his 
the letter of his last name, the L, and it became Hattikal. Some people think it, it meant I had a cold and it cured my cold, but that's not where it came from. It came from happy day cough syrup and medicine to make you feel good. It had a lot of, let me tell you this, it had a lot of vitamins and minerals in it, which we all take vitamins today, and it was used for that, but it also had alcohol in it. It was 12% alcohol. That's the, that's the percentage of wine when you have drinking wine. So, and he, his dosage was four times a day. So people <laughs> would feel pretty good after they take it, you know. <laughs> but he'd say in his program on Sundays, uh, Sunday at noon, and uh, at my house you had to stop. You couldn't eat at noon. You had to wait till he was through with his radio program. And he'd say on that, it's going to make you feel good. It's going to... You're going to be full of pep after you drink this. And it was the alcohol that was doing it. <laughs> but the country had a lot of those kind of patent medicines. Whether it's about one's race, gender, sexuality, marginalized people have often faced discrimination in healthcare. This exclusion has also extended to the belittlement of other medicinal practices. However, I also think it is important to note that while healthy skepticism of former and even present medicinal practices is warranted, I'm not suggesting that objective truths in medicine and healthcare should be ignored. Dr. Richard McKay, author of Patient Zero and the Making of the AIDS Epidemic, better explains the ways in which to correctly question information without denying objective truths. My name is Richard McKay, and I'm a Wellcome Trust Research Fellow at the, in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Cambridge. And I've spent a number of years researching the history of the HIV AIDS epidemic in North America. And I'm currently working on a research project, which is essentially the prequel to that work, investigating how uh, public health researchers became interested in same-sex venereal disease transmission. Uh, between the 1930s and the 1980s in Canada, the United States, and England. To question what is the evidence supporting the position that this person is taking, to not accept uncritically a story and and given how stories and, uh, and images are made of constituent parts and words that have histories that bear upon the way that they are interpreted, um, I, I think this story of huge consequences coming from uh, misreadings or misunderstandings and, and assumptions about what... A sh what <laughs> a symbol or word mean. And one, one of the things that I, I love about history is an academic history is um, the way that the evidence is laid out on the page. I even, um, the publisher was going to initially say, well, you know, we, we do endnotes. And I, I, I made a point and said, no, could you please publish with footnotes? I think it's, it is a, you know, they say some, some readers don't like it, don't like the footnotes. Some people don't like reading it. Well, and I always think, well, if you don't want to read it, you don't have to, but if you do want to know and want to check up on where I'm getting this information and, and, and my, my evidence for this, it's right there for you to check. And, uh, I mean, I would have loved, it's a different type of book. It's a different methodology. Um, and the apparatus in which journalistic books like, and the band played on, are uh, take place, you know, they have a different system. I would have loved it if Randy Schultz had uh, a detailed set of footnotes for every claim that he made um, to be able to allow this kind of checking. And I suspect that some of the claims that he has made, which have been allowed to kind of establish an authority as being a fact, wouldn't have done so if it had been presented in the form of you know, uh, of, of a historical book uh, and one with 
to be very to be aware and critical critically engaged when receiving the information and to not take it as either self-evident or uh, closed down as a uh, uh, an indisputable fact. I mean, uh, I say this and it felt like the difference between when I submitted my manuscript and the political environment that happened after the 2016 election in the United States with uh, increasing um, undermining of any kind of uh, any sense of there being an objective truth. Um, I think it's important to say that I wrote this and submitted it in what feels like a different world. And I, uh, I've certainly, it gave me pause when I, when I look at, that message, I would hate to think it, that it is, uh, could be used and employed um, by anyone wishing to say, well, you don't have to believe anything or you can't believe the experts because, you know, it's, it's more, I mean, I, I think <laughs> it is question the experts but respect their expertise In my interview with Dr. McKay, we discussed his book, Patient Zero and the Making of the AIDS Epidemic. This book dispels the myth of a patient zero in any epidemic, but he focuses on Gaetan Dugas in particular. Dugas became the face of the AIDS epidemic due in part to Randy Schultz's research with the Center for Disease Control, in which they referred to Dugas as patient zero, despite the zero actually being an O for out of California, a label given to Dugas when the CDC conducted a cluster study. Schultz's book and the band played on garnered media attention because of the sensational sections on Dugas and the way Schultz portrayed him. Throughout this book, Dr. McKay masterfully addresses issues ranging from AIDS activism to Dugas' family and personal life. He gives Dugas a voice and humanizes him in the process. A concern many historians writing about the history of Madison have is the balance of the patient's voice with that of medical professionals. Dr. McKay describes the difficulties of this and how he did this in his work. We all know the famous uh, expression, history is written by the winners. Mm. Well, uh, often the, pe well, the people who were the winners, uh, might not be the most appropriate uh, analogy, but uh, to use that phrase, because there were clearly, there were things that were not winning here, but the people whose argument won out were those that took the view that whatever this was, was caused by a virus. And you have add that to the fact that doctors take notes. They have the institutional resources to uh, preserve them and, and barring confidentiality, uh, laws preventing access to, to kind of have their view take precedence. Um, it seemed to me that in order to address that imbalance, you have this natural imbalance in the way that uh, an epidemic might be recorded or a doctor-patient encounter might be recorded, um, that I ought to at least counterbalance that by privileging more patients' voices. So there, I think there was an attempt to say, right, well, we've heard from the doctors. We've heard from a lot of doctors, and they get a lot of airtime. And, um, you know, that's, in, in many cases, that's, that's justifiable. There's a reason we, we hear from them. But, all, but for this matter, um, what can we learn if we make a bit more space for patients? In Patient Zero, much of the history regarding AIDS activism and complaints of lack of funding and research on treatment for AIDS, as well as silence from political leaders, reminded me of the African-American community's response to the lack of attention and medical care paid to sickle cell anemia. Keith Wiley's book, Dying in the City of the Blues, Sickle Cell Anemia and the Politics of Race and Health, discusses the way sickle cell anemia was ignored and how it became a political issue for African-Americans. 
Sickle cell anemia was used to demonstrate the perceived difference between African Americans and other races. Similarly to the AIDS epidemic, it became one widely pushed for recognition and treatment. Sometimes this exclusion and lack of answers from medical professionals has led people to explore other forms of medicine beyond mainstream Western medicine. Some of these include practicing traditional indigenous medicine or seeking healing from Cajun traitors. Mr. C described how he was healed by a traitor after suffering from a heat stroke. Sunstroke, and I went to one, and she said some prayers over me and put her hands on my head, and I no longer had the sunstroke after that. So it worked. When was that? I was I was married then. I had I guess I had gone fishing or I had, I spent my life outside. Uh, I was playing golf or going fishing or doing something outside, and I stayed in the sun too long mm -hmm. without a hat, and I began to get a bad headache. And uh, I figured it was a sunstroke. I called it that anyway. And we went to see a traitor. She was a Mrs. Ule, and uh, she did. She she made it go away. Do you remember what she did exactly? She put her hands on my head, and she said some prayers. Okay. And you can't, you couldn't reward her. You couldn't give her any money. That was against her policy. I would have tipped her, but you, she didn't want to. And that's all she did. That's what, you know. And it went away. Doctors, of course, are much better trained than the traiteurs were. And you go to doctors now, you have a doctor for everything, a special doctor for everything. <laughs> Mr. John also described to me how his grandfather, a traitor, was able to heal a woman who had not been able to receive any relief after visiting several doctors. My grandfather considered himself, I think they call him traitor or whatever. Uh, of course, my mother didn't believe in allowing him to treat on us. But that was my father's father. And he had a good treat. He was out in... Uh, Pettitons area, and he had people coming from throughout the state occasionally to visit him to get treatments and so forth. And he must have been killing them because he would come. I didn't see them on a regular basis because he was living in a rural area, and we were living in New Iberia and Ibrahim, so he was living in between, and he was. At that time, we didn't have the transportation we have today. And sometimes the roads were so bad you couldn't get to his home because he was. My father had bought so many acres of land around, and he had his home in the middle of the land. And it was sloppy out there when it was once rained. It took a long time to dry up. All over came to, to be treated because it, you know, it passed by word of mouth. And uh, this man brought his wife in. I don't know where she's from. But he brought her in, so Josh said, yeah, I can kill her. Sure. She said, okay. He said, uh, he told the lady, go in this room and uh, I'll be with you in just a minute or something like that. So uh, when he did come back, my grandfather, he was within the house. When he did come back to get ready to treat the lady, he told the lady, husband, he had to get out, he had to get out the room. Said, oh, no, 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 no. The lady was, I don't know what she had, but she was pretty sick. And she asked him, please leave so I can be healed. And he stepped out. And the grandfather waited on him. And he, she was killed, you know, but he didn't, he didn't want to leave in there at all. He, he wasn't going to do nothing, just leave her alone. But fortunately, she, she convinced him she wanted, I guess she, she accepted some kind of help because she wasn't probably getting any from the doctor, or they might not have had a doctor around. Yeah. In Alice Snow's book, Healing Plants, Medicine of the Florida Seminole Indians, relates to an idea of bringing back indigenous medicinal practices to their communities and decolonizing medicine. As both women are indigenous, 
They have firsthand accounts in seeing how the lack of traditional medicine being practiced has affected the health of their communities. And Miss Laura Guidry describes her experience of healing after learning traditional indigenous medicine from an indigenous woman. It started out because I had ended up getting injured by a rosebush thorn and it actually had poison on the thorn and I had to have surgery on my thumb and ended up going through three rounds of antibiotics and it was told me to pick the elderberry leaves, make a tea out of it and soak my thumb in it and within one hour of doing that the swelling completely went down the pain was non-existent and it turned back to a nice pink color instead of a horrible red experimental medicinal practices have also been a source of comfort for those who feel as though they are in helpless situations when i asked dr mckay about the alternative treatments during the aids epidemic he explained Many, many forms of treatment uh, in the early years were uh, un, untested or, I mean, you have example of Rock Hudson flying to Paris um, for a drug um, that was touted as being possibly the, this is in 1984, 85, touted as being possibly the, the next, you know, thing and eventually uh, was withdrawn as a treatment option because of lack of effects. Um, you had, uh, there, I, yeah, a, a lot. I mean, I, I would recommend looking through the, the pages of the New York Native and the Bay Area Reporter um, during the early years to find either in letters or in some of the newspaper articles um, uh, talking about possibilities. And so there were, I mean, there were a lot of people who were d desperate uh, to treat themselves, and and um, it's understandable. And it's it's often much easier to to feel that you're to to feel that you're doing something is. Uh, it's not, I I understand that absolutely that that um, even if something is has. Uh, its uh, effectiveness is unknown. It can be uh, therapeutic to know that you're you're taking action, and that happened a lot. Other than seeking alternative medical practices, families in rural areas often treated themselves due to how expensive and far the closest doctors were. Mister Hayes described to me how his grandmother used to treat him. He used examples of a severe cut and how she treated his earache. The only thing she did, and I never forgot that, was she washed it every day. She, she kept me out of school. Uh, and she just washed it and she kept it clean. She washed it every day and I never got alcohol, peroxide, whatever she can get over the counter. Uh, no stitches and she put salt in me like he was saying mm -hmm. and that that stay on there and it wasn't any stitches because at the time my family couldn't afford to take me to the doctor to put stitches it was just like that's the way it was uh, an earache she would <laughs> she had a pipe this is the truth she had a pipe and she would Put a cloth over the pipe where you put the tobacco and she would put it on my ear and she would take it and blow smoke in my ear. Now whether or not it helped, I don't know. Mr. C also described how his parents often cared for him. I had a cold or I had the flu, my mother would help me with it, okay? You didn't necessarily go to the doctor with yeah. a cold. <laughs> you, your mother, uh, she treated you the best she could, you know, and made you comfortable and let it let it wear off of you. 
So my mother and father did help me with that, that right. kind of illness, you know. Mr. Hayes also described the challenges of living in a rural area when his cousin became ill with polio. Facility here in, the, in this area to handle that, you know. And I remember she going, she went to New Orleans. New Orleans was the closest place. And it could have been a charity system there. To put her here would have been a financial disaster. Because I mean, just couldn't. Anyway. But I remember us going down there. And one of the hardest things was to do. We couldn't stay. And sometimes I, I think about my aunt. Because that was her daughter. And we would go on a Sunday. I never forget. We'd go on a Sunday to see her. And... When we left, she couldn't come home with us. She had to stay there until whatever they were doing with it was over with. And uh, she she still lives. She lives in California. Uh, but I remember those days. It's just... So that was the closest place for her, was New Orleans. As I looked skeptically at past medicinal practices and the ways in which people were excluded from medicine through political and financial means, I thought it was important to also note the progress the medical field has made. In addition, discuss the challenges that medical professionals face today. Claudia Hanley, the director of nursing at the University of Maryland Shock Trauma Center, described to me the biggest changes she has noticed in medicine. It's people are going to be more educated, um, I think you have to perform at a high level because they also publicly report all your results, which I think that's actually a good thing. So I think people have choices. So no, you know, it's you're going to have to really maintain your A game, and you have to be really true because everything's going to be publishable. Technology is also a large part of medicine now. While patients may have concerns, Claudia Hanley finds that it is overall good. Electronic health records are a good thing because of legibility, because of portability, those types of things. But I do think that what it hasn't done and what technology hasn't done has been able to fit into the workload of the healthcare worker. So the healthcare workers have had to change their workflows for technology. So it's a great tool, but it needs to be something that they can do on the go or that would fit into their workflow because I do think it it's onerous at times and can take away from the patient. When I asked her what she considers to be some of the most important aspects of being a nurse, she explained to me. Some of the most important factors is being non-judgmental and um because you never know like if you're going to be in somebody else's shoes or how you're going to react to a situation um and you're always going to take care of somebody that has different values and beliefs than you um i think that's one of the most important things and then in my job i think um just being open to listen to feedback, both from nurses, from families, from patients, and being able to process that and see how you can fix problems, either if they're relationship built or through um, processes. She also described her attitudes towards diversity have changed in the medical field. So I think it's hard because you do like diversity training. So you, you learn about, um, you know, different groups, but I think really you can learn everything, but it's not until you're really exposed to it and being able to understand. And I think the key thing about taking care of people from a different diverse background is really listening because, um, Communication is one of the number one things that breaks down to being able to listen to pe what people really want and need, even if that's not something you want for yourself. Claudia Hanley told me a story about when she was most challenged with having an open mind with a patient. 
care of a patient that was younger, probably like early 20s, and her and her family were Jehovah's Witnesses, and she really needed blood products, and that's something they don't believe in and didn't want to give her, and she had life-threatening injuries. So for me, that was really hard because I was like, how are we going to, like, not treat your child because of that? She also described one of the biggest changes in medicine today being that she has noticed a growing distrust among patients with their doctors due to the ability to Google symptoms and find a problem. I think one of the major changes is I think the public is a lot more um, savvy to what goes on in hospitals and a lot more opinionated. And I think it's because they can get access quickly online. It's just sometimes a little bit of knowledge is dangerous Mm -hmm. when they don't quite understand it, but they can look things up. They can Google things. They can do all of this. So um, I think that has been a good thing and can also be a little, it can just be a little detrimental when somebody's only willing to listen to what the internet says. Yeah, or they'll say, you know, Google said this, so it's really hard for, I think sometimes the physicians to just have to explain that every person's different, everybody has different comorbidities, so even though this is a textbook case, it might look different or appear different in you as a patient. I asked Claudia Henley if they have begun to incorporate alternative medicinal practices in trauma care. Yeah, so especially in the trauma population, which I work with because of the opioid crisis now. So we're trying to do alternative methods for pain management. So some of that's relaxation therapy, um, Reiki, meditation. Um, We're using acupuncture. Um, we use some form of pet therapy in terms of people can bring their own pets in. Um, and then we're also looking at trying to go from doing like a numbers pain score where you say rate your pain one to ten, one being like a little bit of pain, ten being the worst pain you ever felt in your life to a functional pain score where you're looking and seeing, like, how people are acting. Are they reading? Are they sleeping? Are they, you know, are their vital signs all stable? So not indicating that they may be in pain. So that's number one where what we're doing in our field just because of when you have a traumatic injury and you're injured, and the opioid crisis, just people getting addicted to narcotics, has been so high. She explained how she thinks people can balance treating themselves and seeing the doctor. I think there's a better balance within terms of preventative medicine and holistic care, meaning taking care of the mind, body, and spirit. So if you have those two things, I think it would decrease the amount of hospital visits. So if people are taking like herbal supplements and vitamins and all that, I do think and practicing healthy lifestyles, then I think you would real, you know, just due to that, see people, less people requiring emergent or urgent care. I asked her if she has witnessed or experienced individuals who do not believe in mainstream Western medicine. I don't know if I've ever witnessed someone that has totally turned from it, but there's definitely people that don't believe in, you know, taking antibiotics or taking pain medicine or something like that just because either their beliefs or, you know, 
they kind of don't want to poison their body. So I have, I've met people like that, but not, I don't think I've ever encountered anyone that's not, you know, but I'm also in the hospital, so I'm where people are to treat, to get treatment. She described how she thinks people can approach healing. A whole host of, you know, side effects that can come with taking pain medication. So I think that people just being able to get up and start walking and brushing their teeth and sitting up and kind of doing the normal daily activities um, increases their healing time and decreases any adverse effects they can get from side effects from pain medication. So when you take pain medication, you know, your bowels slow down, so sometimes you get constipated and you can get groggy and you can just want to sleep so you're not walking around as much. So I also asked her if she has witnessed a change in people's ability to handle pain without pain medication. I think it's probably about half and half because there's some people that don't have a very big, a high pain threshold so they don't want to feel any pain at all when realistically even with pain medicine you can't get someone pain free it's just kind of making them comfortable to be able to continue to you know do their daily habits well I think some of it is um There's obviously real pain, and then I think some of it is uh, psychosocial or, like, so I think if people are doing things that believe that are relieving their pain, then there is, like, a psychological component to that that probably does help. One question about ways in which people are able to practice healthcare for themselves. I think the biggest thing is probably just preventative medicine in terms of, now, eating healthy and exercising and taking care of yourself, so those preventative things, I think, are the best way to avoid having to go to the doctor. I also asked her if she has noticed people avoiding mainstream Western medicine. I know that there is a big push for vaccinations and people don't want to get their children vaccinated due to, um, you know, they think there's a link to autism. I don't work in pediatrics, so I don't know if there's a, um, if they're seeing an increase of things, but I will say, I think that there are diseases coming back that we haven't seen in a really long time, like measles and things like that, which were pretty much abolished when everyone was getting vaccinated. So now that people have a choice, um, I also don't know if it's state by state or county by county, if they want to send their kids to school, you know, do they have to be vaccinated? And I would assume yes, but I don't know. As we discussed pain management, I was curious if one's mindset impacted their ability to heal. You know, I think it's not just the positive thinking. I think when people, you know, there's some injuries that people are going to die from regardless of what you do and how positive their family is or even they are. But I think when you have positive thinking, what it does is, it really invests someone in their care and they're doing everything to make themselves better. So I think that's the aspect of, that's why it has such a better, you know, people have better outcomes because, you know, people that are like, well, is me or they don't want to get up or they're not doing everything that can help them advance. They're going to have complications and that's what, ends up happening with them sometimes, if that makes sense. You know, when you take care of people that are, like, really non-compliant, you know, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily not going to survive, but sometimes they do have a longer hospital stay, 
and more complications just because they're not helping themselves to get better. Finally, she told me the best ways to avoid having to receive unnecessary medical care. About trying to take the best care of yourself and then going to your doctor preventatively. You know, for like women going and getting breast exams and getting pap smears and, um, you know, after you're a certain age, people getting colonoscopies and those kind of routine screenings that if you catch it early, your chance of survivors, survival will be a lot higher than if you never go to the doctor and then all of a sudden you're having pains and you find out, you know, you have cancer. So I think really it's the routine and preventative maintenance that, and some people that do that still get sick, but um, I think it's the best chance of trying to find something early. Medicine has changed a great deal since the decades and centuries prior to 2020. There appears to be a shift, or at least more open-mindedness, towards holistic medicine. Fitness gurus with large followings on social media accounts also encourage an approach of diet and exercise for better health. Though this is not necessarily holistic, and holistic medical practices do not necessarily exclude mainstream medical practices, there is a push for a more natural approach to medicine. In the making of this podcast, I was also able to interview Danielle Smythe. Danielle is a fairly new nurse who is able to describe to me some of the contemporary practices of medicine. Um, I work at Bird Regional Hospital in Louisville, Louisiana. I work on a med surge floor. So that's really um, anybody who's admitted into the hospital for anything, whether you're sick and have pneumonia or you've just had a surgery and need to be in the hospital for a couple days while you heal. Um, I see an array of everything. I, I have seen everything from seven-month-old babies to 100-year-old people. I see everything from common cold to really significant health problems, wounds. Um, I've seen a lot of wounds, actually especially pressure ulcers, and those are horrible. Um, everything from something as little as dehydration to someone who is in, like, stage four kidney failure that is, you know, you're, you hate to say you're waiting for them to die, but you're, you can tell their body is just letting go every day. So um, I do a little bit of everything. I'm kind of we're med search nurses are kind of jack of all trades. We kind of have to know a little bit about everything because you never know what you're going to be seeing. You might just be taking care of an incision and managing pain, or you might have someone who's in, you know, septic shock and you're trying to keep their vitals from tanking. Um, we see a lot in our area. We see a lot of heart disease. We see a lot of COPD tons, tons, tons of COPD. And then um, recently, we have not really been seeing a lot of the flu, but we have been seeing a lot of pneumonia after they have the flu. Yeah. Um, so the pediatric stuff that we see is usually asthma related. That's very common for them to have asthma related. And then um, those crazy viruses that they get, like RSV and stuff like that, that's going around daycares usually in the winter time and stuff like that. So I do. Um, pass, I, I'm a med slinger. That's what I say. I sling meds all day long. It seems like I've I just give meds and more meds and more meds and more meds. And especially when you walk into someone's room and they're and they're not even that old. You know, they're like 40, 50 years old. I'm turning 40 in February, and I think to myself. You're on like five different blood pressure medications and you've got your wife sneaking Popeyes in the, the room. It's like you, at some point you have to try to help yourself a little bit. Like, give me a little bit, man. Just try to eat the diet. Like, help me out here. So, um, you know, sometimes I feel like in our culture, the people just have given up. They just they don't 
they don't want to have to actually work for anything. And I feel like the, the stuff that's worth in life, that's worth the most in life, is always the hardest to achieve. Whether that be good health or spiritual growth or even your career, like you have to work at it. Nursing journey has been because I really was feeling like I needed to be giving back to my fellow man. I needed to be caring for them, that there was a reason why I had the gifts that I did as far as like why I loved medicine so much and and how I could understand the way certain things worked in people's bodies. Danielle explained how she viewed medicinal practices through her Christian faith. I asked her if she believes in holistic medicine, and she explained. And the advancements, you know, penicillin, vaccinations, all super important. But there are things that he's put on earth that help us. Like, I'm really big into aromatherapy. I really feel strongly about it. It's... um. Smell is one of the only ways you can tap into certain parts of your brain. And that's why when you walk into a room and you smell something and it's like you instantly think of your grandmother's cooking or something that brings back your childhood, it just brings you right back. Like this smells like something. And so I do believe in like calming. Um, I've seen some essential oils work really well with changing moods and helping people to feel more comfortable in certain rooms and things like that. And I do believe that it's the sense of smell that is helping them with that. I've seen women in labor that they start using aromatherapy and it instantly settles their anxiety. I did see a veterinarian do acupuncture when I was working in the vet clinic And I had it done on my own personal dog who had really bad arthritis and she struggled with bad knees. And I can attest to the acupuncture helping her be able to move around and it would also calm her down. She was a very anxious dog and you could just tell something was just not like she just was always so nervous about everything and she'd go in and she'd have acupuncture and then she'd come home and she'd just lay around all day long just chill zen so um i do believe that there is a place for integrative medicine in the fact of i don't think we should just totally get rid of vaccinations altogether i don't think they're bad for us i don't think that there's toxic stuff that causes autism or anything like that But I do believe that there are some things that you can do to help prevent you from having to be on medications every day for like blood pressure and diabetes and, you know, herbs and your diet and your exercise can definitely help you with that part of it so that you're not living out of a pill bottle. And I think that people need to realize that you give someone a pill that doesn't necessarily mean that you're good now. You could just go, you know, eat whatever you want to eat. You still have to take care of yourself. The medicine is only going to help so much. So. And when I asked her about having a healthy skepticism about medicine. I definitely think you should have a healthy skepticism of medicine because it's not a cure. It's not a, it's not a happy pill. I, I use that term loosely because we see it a lot with, with like people with that suffer from, especially, you know, they think you give them a pill and they're going to automatically walk out of there and everything about their life is going to be happy. It is a state of mind you choose. And so- she also described how people fall into the trap of believing false information. I think that it's important for anybody to think to themselves, this is not necessarily going to fix me and, you know, just let me go do whatever I want to do. If you have high blood pressure, you can't take high blood pressure medicine and then go eat fast food every single day. Like, that's just not, that's not the way it works. And I think that our culture thinks that. They think that if the doctor gives it to them, then it's safe and it's going to fix everything and we're never going to have to worry about it again. And I think that that's another reason why people are so scared of like essential oils and herbs and remedies because 
it seems like if it's written on a prescription pad, it doesn't matter what's in it, they're going to take it and it's going to be fine. But if you tell someone, you know, a little bit of lavender on your big toe every night would help you sleep instead of taking Ambien, they're like, what kind of witch doctor are you? But lavender has had properties for hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, there's a reason why they brought frankincense and myrrh to Jesus when he was born. Like there was a reason for that. So I think that that part of it is always very frustrating to me because, yes, we do have all these medical technologies, but that does, that really just does not mean that you just are free to just go live your life however you want to live your life and not have any, you know, side effects. And then the side effects of medicine uh, is another thing. You know, if you want to take something and it makes you have another symptom, like, you know, you have your nauseous, you're sick to your stomach, and then you take Zofran and its side effect is a headache. Do you, I mean, is it really worth it then? Because then you've got a headache. And so now you've got two things instead of just one, instead of putting some ginger root on your wrist, trying to calm your stomach, or maybe smelling some peppermint, that'll settle, settle your stomach and not have those adverse reactions. Or that in our culture, I think diet and exercise would be two things that are not traditionally considered holistic, but I consider them holistic. People don't think of them as holistic medicines. Maybe the Eastern medicine does, but Western medicine does. But I feel like diet and exercise can treat so many different ailments that would prevent people from having to be on any kind of medication from depression and anxiety to diabetes, hypertension, and heart disease. Um, and not only that, I feel like the mind is a very powerful thing. If, if you tell yourself I'm sick and I'm just never going to get better. And this is just how I am. I'm just in pain all the time. You're never going to get better then. You're always going to be in pain because you're not going to be willing to do the things that you need to do to get to the point where you're not in pain all the time. And uh, the pain thing is a, a big one for me because um, so many times that's something that could be fixed, but it hurts. And it, physical therapy hurts after you are injured it hurts to get yourself back and so then people don't want to go and do it because it hurts but it's, it's like it hurts for a little while and then it gets better but people don't want to put forth that effort to get to the point where it's better so that part is super frustrating for a nurse because of her background in veterinary medicine Smythe explained the distrust of doctors she has seen across disciplines I think they really just got a lot of misconceptions out there. I think it's easy with the internet for you to read an article on, you know, WebMD and then you feel like you're some kind of an expert, like, oh, I read an article. And I, I really feel like sometimes that super, that discredits the medical community because we have spent so many hours and so much time reading books and um, research articles and trying to understand how the body actually works and why certain things work the way that they do for you. And it really frustrates me, especially when it's somebody that I went to high school with. I'm like, you barely graduated from high school and you know more about vaccinations than I do when I've just like devoted the last four years of my life to this. Like, really? But that that part of it, you know, I really feel like the Internet is is something that really plays into that part because there is just so much a vast amount of information out there and it's not always good information. Anybody can write anything they want on the inter internet and it's not necessarily true. You know, the flu vaccination does not make you have the flu people. It doesn't. <laughs> she expanded on how she thought certain people responded to alternative forms of medicine. The veterinary medicine world, that is so, it is even worse I mean, they really think that, 
you know, first veterinarians go to school as long as doctors. They don't get the amount of respect that they deserve in the fact of they're treating several different species, whereas a human doctor, the only thing that's different between humans is the reproductive system. Everything else is exactly the same. You know, a veterinarian might treat a cat in one room and go outside and treat a horse and a, or a goat or a cow that has a significantly different digestive system and anatomy and all that. And so, um, you know, veterinary medicine is a luxury. It's you, you're only going to use it if you can afford to use it. And in our demographic of area, people can barely afford to feed their kids much less take their dog to the vet to make sure that they've had their rabies vaccination. Um, and so you don't really get to practice medicine because this dog might have this really bad contagious disease that they've been treating at the feed store with whatever the guy at the feed store has told them and pet stores is the other thing. Like, you know, well, the girl at the pet store told me that this raw food diet is the best for my dog, never mind the fact of some of these diets have been developed by veterinarians who have studied for years and years and years the ramifications of these diets. And then you just, you know, believe the lady that works at PetSmart over me. Danielle Smythe described how she approaches medicine and how she encourages others to approach it. <laughs> <laughs> That part, I could talk to you forever about how frustrating that part is. So in terms of the aromatherapy, which I know you already talked about, do you think there's more open-mindedness about that? Like, is it more encouraged when you're dealing with patients to consider those kind of treatments? You know, believe it or not, I find that the people who are more spiritually inclined, um, tend to be more receptive to it than people who are not, if that makes sense. Um, especially when you explain it to them, you know, the way tapping into your brain certain ways um, and then believing that God has left powerful things on this earth and has, has provided things for our use on this earth. Um, Whereas people who tend not to be Christians or not even, a, you know, really walking spiritually. And I say spiritually kind of loosely because they're not always Christians. Furthermore, she believes medicine is a better source of healing when it comes from love. But for me, it's, it's Christian. It's God. It's, it's Christ. Um, so... I always think to myself when I'm walking out of the room, like, aha, that was Jesus. But, you know, you don't have to admit it if you don't want to. Uh, but those people tend to be a little bit more receptive to it. It's like they do believe that God will work if you allow him to and that his creations are just as powerful as penicillin. But I feel like, you know, um, rosemary is rosemary is really great if you have a cough to put it in your diffuser and just let it go throughout the night it'll really help you not to be hacking and coughing all night while your body is trying to get rid of a, a virus so i believe rosemary has its place but then if you're coughing so much that you can't breathe and your oxygen level is decreasing then by all means take the cough medicine that your doctor has prescribed you know but if you've if you tried rosemary and it doesn't work, then go to the, you know, go to the doctor. If you go to the doctor and that's not working, then why not try something else more holistic? Um, diet is super important for people that are cancer patients. Sometimes eliminating certain things from the diet or adding certain things from the diet will give you back and forth, you know, either, you know, I don't want to say cure stuff or take stuff away or maybe you don't see something on a scan the next time you go, but, and what is, you know, the really important things with a diet are the one, the natural 
grown vegetables and animals that we have received. Not the process, you know, everybody tells you processed food is horrible for you. Well, that's because it's not naturally made by God's hands. So, of course, it's bad for you. Not what he wanted us to eat, you know. I think that our preacher even made a good point of it a couple of weeks ago. He made a point about the Daniel diet. And he said, you know, it's a good diet. We don't follow it usually. But it's something that God said, look, I'm going to give this to you. And if, if you follow this, you will live a healthy life. Does that mean that you're totally exempt from all medical? No. I also asked her, as a new nurse, if she already knew certain medical practices that she wanted to see changed. Um, there are some medical practices that I would like to see changed, um, especially in the realm of pain, because pain is subjective, and right now... I have to, if you walk into my room, or if I walk into your room and say, are you feeling any pain? And you say, yes. And I say, okay, well, can you rate your pain on a scale of one to 10, one being virtually no pain, 10 being the absolute worst pain you have ever felt in your entire life. And you tell me my pain is a 10. I have to take you for your word. Even though I'm looking at you, we're having a conversation. Sometimes you're falling asleep. And you tell me that your pain is a 10 and then I've got to go and I've got to give you a significant pain medication when I know you've been struggling with addiction and I know that this is only going to keep harming you in the long run, but I have to take it out because whatever the patient says is what it is. And I hope in the future with the opioid epidemic that we have, such a horrible opioid epidemic. I mean, I I had heard about it, but working in the hospital, I cannot even begin to tell you how horrible it truly is. And it is destroying families. And the saddest part is that people think that it's okay because it's written on a prescription pad and the doctor gave it to you. And so that the they don't consider themselves addicts at that point. They consider themselves somebody who is just taking what the doctor prescribes and you know not all doctors are of right motive and not all nurses are of right motive and so that part of it I would really like to see change I would hopefully in the future like to see some more integrative medicine used for pain like laser therapy and acupuncture and not necessarily going straight to those opioids that just really wreaking havoc on our community. In the university special collections, I found a newspaper article from 1984 in the advertiser entitled "When Tribal Healers Cure the Sick." The first sentence reads: "White-coated scientists with rows of test tubes have no monopoly on medical wonders." It then proceeds to explain how people in Lafayette have been visiting African tribal healers for healing. The article describes how the tribal healers pick herbs and plants specifically based off the time of day. Is they examine how emotions are connected to disease. The author remarks that many people have been healed from visiting these tribal leaders after they face disappointment in doctors' offices. One of the first interactions I had with quote-unquote alternative medicine was when I was watching an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. In the episode, patients with illnesses ranging from bone marrow disease to AIDS visited Dr. Hong Lu, who practiced in ancient Chinese medicine. All of the patients aired remarked on noticing a difference in their health. At the time, I arrogantly scoffed at the idea, believing that only medical professionals and offices and hospitals could do anything to heal somebody. But throughout this class, I started to think about my own bias. Growing up in a Protestant household and being a part of that community, I never once questioned when someone claimed they were healed through prayer. Now I recognize that many people believe that they have experienced a form of healing outside of mainstream Western medicine. I've often been faulty and inaccurate in the past. While there is still much work to be done, 
is becoming more popular for people to combine both mainstream Western medicinal practices and alternative medicinal practices. Regardless of one's views on different practices, it is important to consider how marginalization in healthcare and the belittlement of other forms and practices of medicine is both immoral and harmful to our understanding of healing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and be sure to listen to the other four stellar episodes in this series.